What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I'm David Copperfield. I'm your nephew. You're the only family I have. What do we do with him? If I were you, I'd wash him. Oh, donkeys! This is a donkey-free zone! Move it! You're a remarkable woman. Very kind. Hugh Laurie, Dev Patel, and the incomparable Tilda Swinton in a bit of the trailer for The Personal History of David Copperfield, the new film from UK director Armando Iannucci. It opens in limited release this weekend. This week on the show, a review of Copperfield, and we continue our overlooked auteurs marathon with Vera Chitlova's Daisies, a Czech New Wave classic from 1966. That and more. Adam, you know, this show is also a donkey-free zone. No donkeys. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon got off to a roaring start last week with Ida Lupino and Maya Darren getting into some very experimental territory with Darren. And that continues this week, I'd say, with the irreverent 1966 movie Daisies from Czech director Vera Chitlova. She was one of the pioneers of the Czech New Wave. And after seeing Daisies, I understand why. Yeah, there's going to be a lot to talk about there. Can I say real quick, Adam, I'm already regretting my donkey-free zone comment. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I feel like that's a betrayal of my beloved Alhazar Baltazar. So Good point. L- let me take that back, okay? And we'll we'll move on. Yeah, I mean, you have the donkey tattoo for Brisson, <laughs> don't you? So Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, we will get to all of that talk, maybe some more donkey talk later in the show. But first, directors ranging from David Lean to Alfonso Cuaron have taken on the challenge of adapting Charles Dickens. The latest to give it a go? Armando Iannucci with the personal history of David Copperfield. Whether I turn out to be the hero of my own story, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these moments must show. My boyhood days seem now like a scarcely believable fiction. London is full of wonders and wickedness. And it's ours, David, to go wherever we choose. Well, I'm not down there. Creditors make that road impossible. Two tailors and a most unreasonable muffin man. Copperfield! Your mama is ill. How old is she? Very ill. Very ill. Very ill. Very ill. Dangerously ill. She's dead. We're very sorry. Having avoided, as is customary for me, any clips or commentary about Armando Iannucci's latest, I will confess that until I looked up its rating and runtime last weekend, I was pretty sure there was no way the personal history of David Copperfield was actually a Dickens adaptation. Iannucci has TV credits going back to 1990, but is probably best known, and certainly best known to us, as the showrunner of HBO's Veep and the writer-director of 2009's joyously profanity-laden In the Loop, and The Death of Stalin, one of my favorite films of 2017. Those are three absurdist satires that sardonically skewer present-day political systems and leaders. Yes, even the early Cold War-era Russia-set Stalin had undeniable parallels to today. And quick sidebar here, Josh, I found this sentence under reception when I was looking up something on the Wikipedia entry for In the Loop. And I'll remind you, the movie came out in 2009. There's this quote, Screen International's David Darcy was complimentary 
but noted that the release of the film may be poorly timed given the new presidency of Barack Obama, stating its exuberant, boundless cynicism will test the demand for political satire in an Obama infatuated America. Hmm. Can you imagine? <laughs> Did such an idealistic, hopeful time really exist? What what time machine can we get in to take us back there? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't want to confine an artist. It did occur to me, though, what could possibly attract Iannucci to Dickens' classic tale of a young boy's journey from a mostly idyllic birth to a downtrodden existence of abuse and factory labor and eventually escaping to pursue becoming a gentleman and a writer? How is David Copperfield, at least filtered through Iannucci's darkly comic and politically focused worldview, relevant now? Iannucci, to be sure, presents us with a strikingly modern adaptation, complete with colorblind casting, including Dev Patel as David, with Jairaj Varsani as his younger self, and bold meta-flourishes such as David beginning his story on a stage, walking towards the curtain behind him, and entering the scene of his origin. A cupboard that becomes a curtain that drops to mark a transition, just like one might in the theater. And my favorite, David and company dancing and rejoicing inside the houseboat at Yarmouth, hearing a commotion from above, and then we see the hand of Mr. Murdstone reaching in and effectively dragging David out of that scene back home, the matching cut occurring as Murdstone reaches down to grab the page where David had been drawing this scene. Josh, did you find these embellishments inspired and instructive, elevating Iannucci's interpretation of the material? And did Iannucci succeed in making David Copperfield relevant now, or is that too narrow a criterion to judge? I think you're right. I don't think any of us expected a PG film from Iannucci at any time. Right. That was a shocker. Even if you sat through one episode of Veep, right? And, and this is indeed PG, family-friendly, you could say. We might talk about whether that does service to Dickens. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's thought of as a very family-friendly author and certainly one of the classic authors maybe you first encounter as a kid. But there's a lot of darkness in his stories, too. And and um, I don't know that there's much of that darkness here. So did Iannucci make it relevant? I'm going to eagerly await for your political interpretation of personal history of David Copperfield, Adam, because I totally expect there's something there to that end that would not surprise me at all. Um, given the richness of Dickens, given the track record of Iannucci, I just did not, I wasn't grabbed enough by this film to have the motivation to dig that out. I'll be honest with you, for some reasons we'll get to, but that's not to say it isn't there. I think maybe an, a more astute, engaged viewer could probably pick something out. I think to answer your other question, that's not a requirement of Iannucci or this Dickens adaptation. I think it could be successful, considered successful on entirely other terms than whether or not it updated it or speaks to our times or or anything along those lines. So, so I don't know that that's the ultimate standard we need to hold this to. I guess for me, what was distinctive here is in line with Iannucci's work and that this was Dickens' farce, mostly. It definitely played up the comedy, the, the comic aspects of all the characters, and most likely in the way it is paced. Uh, Iannucci's films fly by, right? Mm -hmm. Conversations are quick. The plot is quick. Uh, the, the filmmaking is quick. And I think that has all been amped up here. And I think that is occasionally fun. We could talk about our favorite performances and characters here. I think it works in some ways to play this largely as farce. But I, often, I also think that it does reduce the narrative, or at least makes it move by so quickly that we do lose a lot. There are some clever ways he does that, like the hand 
sequence you just talked about, Adam. I, I mm-hmm. think that's a nice way to get us from Yarmouth back to Mr. Murdstone's parlor in an instant, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that's a quick way to elide time. But there are some other instances where things just feel rushed, this huge novel, we're flying through it. And what we end up missing a lot of the times is character a little bit and context, which is crucial. We don't think about this a lot, but context is often crucial in getting the joke, in the humor coming across, because we need to know what is building up towards that laugh. And we open the show with the clip of Tilda Swinton talking about the donkeys. I think that's an, that's an example. I understand why the donkey, her yelling about donkeys is supposed to be funny, but because this character, Betsy Trotwood, has come at us so quickly, we don't spend a lot of time with her, we don't really understand fully why this is funny. We just know that it's supposed to be. So for me, I think the rushed farce emphasis held me back a little bit from a film that I do. There are other things that I want to get to that I I did enjoy about it. And mostly above all, Patel's performance, I want to spend time on. Hmm. Well, I will disagree with you a little bit on the point you're making specifically about Swinton and the bit with the donkeys, because I'm not familiar with the Dickens at all. And yet I did find that to be pretty funny, or at least I did when it paid off later, when you see her instinctually wanting to shoo people away with the donkeys and someone has to stymie her. I did find that funny. And I think it's just based on the fact that any character we meet with her nose up to the glass, the way we meet Tilda Swinton's Betsy, and then just her overall kind of crazy behavior. I still thought the donkeys bit work, but this film I think is a case where I definitely like the movie more than you, but I'm reasonably confident there's not going to be any criticism you're going to offer that I'm going to sharply disagree with, nor are you going to be aghast at any of the things I appreciate it. I think we probably saw the same movie and saw the same positive and negative things. I just took more pleasure in the things I appreciated. And I know we're going to get to Dev Patel later. For me, those meta elements, I did find them mostly inspired. And there was a line I was sure came from the source material that really stood out to me. And today, a Google search confirmed that it is in the text. What an amazing place London was to me when I saw it in the distance and how I believed all the adventures of all my favorite heroes to be constantly enacting and reenacting there and how I vaguely made it out in my own mind to be fuller of wonders and wickedness than all the cities of the earth. I think the cinematic devices we've touched on a little bit do heighten those wonders. And I think maybe even heighten the wickedness as Iannucci depicts it. And I think that is one of the things that makes the film to me feel a little bit Iannuccian. And I think another aspect, and this is where this movie actually ended up being a pretty good companion to Daisies, which we're going to talk about later. This film is all about, to me, Josh, satirizing decorum. It's thumbing its nose at authority and all the institutions that betray and oppressed. So that for me is where it really feels like one of his films. The villains here are those who have money and they have power or only want money and power. And they're really only interested in that rising status or maintaining their status. And they don't care about the costs to others. So I think that's maybe the relevance or maybe that was, I'm speculating, obviously the hook for Iannucci with this material. I did feel like the humor here for the most part was also Inspired. I love the playfulness with words when he is interacting with Hugh Laurie's Mr. Dick, who has this infatuation with King Charles, the beheaded King Charles, and they're shifting their train of thought. And he says something about Charles's head. We'll pick it up later. Or when Deb Patel, as David walks in and he is told to form a queue and David kind of looks around like, why would I need to 
make a line to get into this room, and he literally means for him to form the letter Q. The collector is taking the rug from Peter Capaldi's Mr. Macabre by dragging the rug from under the door with Great the touch. baby's crib. Yeah, the, the baby's crib still on top, like a <laughs> yeah. boat being, you know, going out to sea. I just thought that was so perfect. And then even the utter absurdity and the brilliance of a tilde line that I wonder if it's in the book and if it's an Ianucci creation, then hats off to him. But let's say... Her life has changed. She has come to live with David in his flat. And Uriah Heat, played by Ben Wishaw, says to her that it's probably not what she's accustomed to, but it's perfectly suited to someone in her circumstances. And she says, I'm not someone in my circumstances. <laughs> like, talk about your perfect Ianucci character, the complete obliviousness, this total sense of denial and superiority. And you just you just can't express it better than those six words, which can't be delivered with any more truthfulness, even though the words themselves, the sentence itself is is a lie. You can't say it with more conviction than how Tilda Swinton delivers it. And then, honestly, the biggest thing for me, even though... It cuts both ways. I completely agree with you that it does not maintain it as effectively throughout the movie. It does rush to fit in too many characters and too many story developments. But I did actually really respond to the briskness of the pace, especially, as I said earlier in the film, the rhythm of it. And I mean, what I really love about Iannucci, and you saw this, too, in The Death of Stalin, the actual musicality of it, of the staging for the camera, the dialogue the blocking, sound, even the the way the handheld camera moves with it. In the best scenes of this movie, it feels like you could almost have a metronome set to them. So that that's something I really responded to here. Yeah, I think you can easily say this is his most cinematic work so far. Not that the others weren't, but it is definitely heightened here with uh, different camera angles he's using, a lot of the meta elements you've already talked about, even the fact that we get the point of view from you know young David as an infant, <laughs> what what he sees just after mm-hmm. he was born, touches like that, I think are, are make they make this more cinematic than In the Loop or The Death of Stalin. Um, and I don't know if... I think you said that the meta touches and the cinematic, the cinematic elements heighten the story. But the, the thing with Dickens is I don't know if if the material needs to be heightened so much. If you think about uh, some of the filmmakers who have taken him on, like Quran or Lean, uh, their work is they're basically it's all there on the page. All the cinema is on the page with Dickens because he was such a great describer of setting, of character, of light, of all these cinematic things are right there in the description. So you, the work you have to do, I think, really is much more with what are you going to do with these plots? What are you going to do with these narratives? I think that's the hurdle that filmmakers have to leap. And, and a lot of other classic authors, it might be otherwise, where, where you have a condensed, concise theme and plot, you know what to do with that. And the idea is, well, how do we make this visual? How do we make this mm-hmm. cinematic? It's almost the opposite with Dickens. And for me, I do think that's where the farce choice is effective at times. I don't think it was entirely the wrong way to go. It's just that when when that's the main 
uh, speed you're going to be in, you lose out on some of the things like I was saying in terms of character or context. I'm with you to get to some of the ones that I think do work. Capaldi as Mr. Micawber is great. Those sequences, the bit with the rug um, mm-hmm. is just hysterical. It's a bit of physical comedy that is going to work whether or not you have a full sense of Mr. Micawber or not. That That's just, that's a gag that's going to work, right? It's like, a, it's Three Stooges, it's Marx Brothers. It's something that that is just going to sell. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that in this film. And there are moments like that that gave me a lot of pleasure. But I want to go back a little bit to, you know, just thinking about Dickens and this idea of the darkness of Dickens and the choice to go farce first does lose some of that when you think, you know, there's one way to read this story as one of, as so many Dickens stories, child abuse, right? And I'm not saying this had to be completely dour in some sort of social statement film. But I think any hint of that is kind of lost here in this translation. And it's interesting because you look at uh, Iannucci's other films, In the Loop and Stalin, are both dealing with serious, intense topics, the Iraq War and and Stalin. And I think that's always been a delicate dance he's done in his films is to Mm -hmm. make farce out of like historically grave instances. And he's mostly managed to balance it. I, I think, you know, there there are some ways where you might might say, eh, should we really be laughing this hard about Stalin? But I think he mostly manages to pull that off. And here in Copperfield, it feels like he's decided to set that aside and not to have to try to deal with sort of the darkness that is the undercurrent of Dickens' work. And and I think that's largely a result of of the pacing and of the focus on farce. Hmm. This is an area where we disagree to the extent that while that darkness may or may not be throughout the film as much as it should be or maybe as much as it is in the novel, that particular moment. And to go back to a pacing note first, when the news of his mother's passing, and this is fairly early in the film, so not a huge spoiler here, is delivered and he's being told by four or five different people in the room. That's one of those cases for me where even in such a dark dour moment, there's that farcical pace to it. And Mm -hmm. it feels to me both simultaneously hilarious and really, really depressing. And then when Hmm. we get his reaction to it, where he actually starts breaking bottles, breaking those jars in the factory, that actually, for me, really neatly matches the violence that we see Mr. Murdstone inflict on him a little bit earlier in terms of the energy of it and the speed of it. It took me right back to that and understanding him finally getting to express the anger and frustration and the pain he felt back when that was happening to him. This is finally his moment to let it out. But that scene in particular where he is abused, where he is dragged out of that lesson and brought upstairs. I found that, Josh, honestly, as harrowing (laughs) as anything I've seen in the past year from any movie, no matter how overall depressing or grim they might be. And so for me, that was a perfect example of that really interesting, intricate balance that you're right. Iannucci has managed to find throughout most of his filmography, these fanciful touches and the movie flits around so lightly and absurdly that you could easily overlook the horrific behavior of some of these characters or not be affected by it. But I think Iannucci conveys the real terror of that, and he does it because of the perspective, the way he sets up so early those perspective shots and seeing the world from David's point of view, even in that great moment where he reaches down into the book, how the camera is framed down below. So we get that full sense of David having to look up at this imposing mm-hmm. evil man and that intimidation of it. 
I felt it throughout that scene. Honestly, that that really kind of took my breath away watching hmm. that scene where he's abused. And I think if I remember correctly, actually, he does cut away at some point. So we only hear the sound. And yet just my imagination, my sense of the scene based on everything that got us into it really did hit me. So for me, that was another example of Inichi doing what you're exactly right. He's done so well in those other films, especially The Death of Stalin, where you are laughing at these monsters, and yet it doesn't let you forget the monstrosity of what they're doing. Yeah, and I guess in Stalin, I can think of those things happening simultaneously in a scene, for me at least, whereas here, it's it's kind of like, okay, this is the scene where you know young Davy's going to be beat, so now we're going to be serious. And because it's existing in this, this bubble where farce is all around it, it just didn't register for me like it did for you. I think it's also an issue hmm. of the casting here because Murdstone played by Darren Boyd, I think it's one of the instances where it just doesn't work. He's He almost comes across as a clown or a buffoon more than this, this terrifying presence who we recognize before David even does is going to entirely upend his his life. And so I think that's, I think there are a good number of really strong performances here. And then a couple instances where the casting just seems off. I don't know if Wishaw, who is an actor who previous to this, I, I've liked in just about everything he's mm-hmm. done. I don't know. And, and of course, when you play someone like Uriah Heep, you know, even if you never re- read the book, you have some sense of who Uriah Heep is. That's hard. That's a challenge, right? To kind of overcome that. And sort of the simpering vision he gives us here, which is definitely in a bit of the character. I don't know. It just, that was one that was off for me. But as I said, Capaldi, I thought, was dead on. And should we get to Patel? Can we talk about Dev Patel? Well, because he can I me. can I first defend Ben Wishaw? Yeah, because go ahead. That's another area where I disagree with you. I actually really like that performance, and there is something really tragic about me being an English major, and yet I'm not sure I've read any Dickens. And I thought Uriah Heep was just that rock band from the '70s. So <laughs> the name, the name popping up, was really astounding for me. Just that alone. I think that's a testament to Wishaw, and I'll give some credit to Ianucci here as the writer and the director here, in that I felt instantaneous, just like all the characters in the film do, disdain for him as someone who is so simpering, to use your word. There's something so obsequious about him that you really just can't stand to be around him. At the same time, I never lost sight of the fact that it's ironic the way he's being treated by David Copperfield, because David's not really any more of a gentleman than Uriah Heep is. And so that that clash between them was always there. And it made me, because of the way he's treated by everyone in the film, made me actually sympathize with him and at least understand that that desire to at all costs elevate himself. You can almost appreciate it, even as you see the things he does are are terrible or hurt other characters in the film that you care more about. So I actually really liked that performance and thought it was a slippery slope and a, and a tough line, I suppose, that Wish I had to walk. I think to some extent you see it with Anurin Barnard as James Steerforth, too, who's this character who you simultaneously hate for his privilege. And yet you get enough of a sense about him that he's to some extent aware of his privilege and his shortcomings. And he's a really fun character and also one that you find yourself like Uriah Heep despising in moments. So those to me were two characters and two performances that I thought really fit nicely into the overall ensemble. But you're right. This really is Dev Patel's 
show, and he's really wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's just, in a way, I, I hate to bring up the pace again, but in a way it does him a disservice because Copperfield is kind of bounced around for, for me in this movie, like from scene to scene, from character to character. And part of that is the meta element, right? So he's on the screen a lot, but mm-hmm. doesn't really have a lot. We don't have a lot of chances to just sit with him, considering the movie his name is in the title. Yet, Patel has an effortlessness to every moment, an earnestness, which I think is mm-hmm. crucial when you're playing David Copperfield. He's charming, which we already knew, and then really gifted as a physical comedian. Yes. Um, you yeah. know, we, we meant, we've talked about the rug scene, but there are so many sort of pratfall moments here that he absolutely pulls off. And it just made me realize, uh, and I haven't seen everything that Patel has been in since Slumdog Millionaire, and I know he's done work, but he he has not really risen to the international stardom that something like this shows me he absolutely deserves. Because you wonder, like, what can't he do? It's one of these movies where mm-hmm. you do say, what can't he do? I came out of it thinking, I don't know why this came to mind, and I'm sure people have asked this. As a matter of fact, I, I've looked it up a little bit just this afternoon. Patel is Bond. Like, do, do we go that way with the next hmm. James Bond? Hmm. Uh, and, and I, you know, obviously he'd be more of the like uh, Roger Moorish um, comic Bond. And sure enough, I think it was a recent interview he did with IndieWire about this movie. He, he said he wasn't interested. <laughs> I think the huh. quote, let me, let me tell you the quote because it's kind of funny. You don't want me blasting through a door with a Walter PPK to try to save you. I'll do the comedy version with Armando. So, hey, I, I would be up with that. The, yeah. the the Bond as farce with Dev Patel in the lead role. Um, but, yeah, this guy just deserves more chances, more, I guess I would say, like top line chances than he's gotten so far. Yeah, you said it very well. His charisma just oozes off the screen and it's that verbal acuity with the physical comedy as well that really does make this a special performance, I think. There was a nice touch. I agree with you overall that I don't think because of the rush to fit in everything at the end, that we truly get the full sense of his character and the journey he's on and any kind of transformation. I do feel like something is lost a little bit in the translation here, but there's kind of a nice moment too. You know how much I love, speaking of recent literary adaptations of classic books, you know how much I love Little Women, and there's a nice moment near the end that maybe it's not this confusing or ambiguous at all, but as a viewer, I was watching and going, okay, is what... I'm about to see happen actually reality and it's something he wrote about or is he writing it into existence? You know, is that meta element at play as well? Well, yeah, both this and Little Women, the screen adaptations are portrait of young artists, right? The the evolution of young artists. And I think Little Women does a much better job of getting us inside the personal experience of the blossoming artist mm-hmm. than than what we do get here with David Copperfield. The personal history of David Copperfield is open in select theaters now. There is an expansion expected to follow. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net or we're on Twitter at filmspotting and at Larson on Film. If you've never heard of Vera Chitlova, well, then she counts for you, as she does for us, as an overlooked auteur. Our marathon of unsung filmmakers continues with Chitlova's Daisies from 1966 when we come back. Plus, Adam and I, I consider us overlooked actors, Adam. <laughs> We're going to play Massacre Theater. Stay with us. I ain't got no money, baby. Give me some money. Don't want you, honey. I can make my own wooden Take into pieces, I've been sold off cheap, mother. 
of these bullets is like us. Travelling forwards through time. The other one's going backwards. Can you tell which is which? How about now? My brain already hurts. That's from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Josh, it's really happening. Mm-hmm. Tenet is opening on some screens, including here in Chicago, on Monday, August 31st. It expands on September 3rd. We have our tickets. We have our masks. Probably a good time to acknowledge that, yes, without any knowledge as of this taping of a critic screening, not having any details there or being aware of or expecting that we're going to get a link to view from home, we do both have tickets to see it in a movie theater on Monday, August 31st. It'll be the first time for both of us back in a theater since early March. And I suppose since we have purchased our tickets, it goes without saying that we have decided we're comfortable with the social distancing and with the wearing of masks to partake in this little adventure. But certainly we don't expect that us seeing the movie or talking about it should be a mass endorsement to put themselves in harm's way. That's definitely a personal choice. And in this case, we're going to see what's going on with Christopher Nolan and Tenet. Yeah, I mean, like everything in our lives these days, it, it is a personal decision that hopefully you are taking into account, not your, just your own safety, but everyone else's. That's what mm-hmm. we're trying to do here. I, I'm honestly, we were slacking about it. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly conflicted. I feel comfortable right now. This is a limited capacity theater, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm monitoring how many people are going to be there. I'm monitoring the, the, the levels in our zip codes. We can do mm-hmm. that here in Chicago. And so again, taking into account our own safety, the, the, you know, the responsibility we have to everyone else when we go out, just as we would going out to do anything these days. So totally understand if listeners uh, choose not to go see a movie in a theater these days. I don't think I'm going to be making it a regular habit for quite a while. But in this instance right now, we're both up for it, which means that we will get to talk about Tenet next week. Yeah, and we'd be excited about a new Nolan film under any circumstances, not just the current ones that have pushed the film's release back almost two months. But we did, of course, recently wrap up a very rewarding Nolan overview, our first ever overview, where we took a look at an entire filmography of a director, a little different than a marathon, and did it for the most part, in chronological order. I think with other filmmakers, that will probably be a little easier task to pull off. Nolan, as is appropriate to his films, makes that a little more complicated with those Batman movies coming into play. But we bring that up again because if you are fairly new to the show or weren't able to listen to those conversations, links to all those Nolan reviews can be found at filmspotting.net. There will be a link to that overview page right on the main page of our website, filmspotting.net. Of course, also, you can hear those wherever you get your podcasts. A lot is happening in the movie world between now and next weekend. Tenet, as we mentioned, opening on many screens on the 31st. We've got the long-anticipated Bill & Ted sequel, Bill & Ted Face the Music, coming to VOD this weekend, and Disney's live-action Mulan hitting Disney Plus on September 3rd. And if that's all not enough, a new one from writer-director Charlie Kaufman, I'm thinking of ending things comes to Netflix September 4th. So a lot to see, a lot to talk about. We definitely plan as of right now to have reviews of both Tenet and the new Kaufman next week on the show. 
We'll also have the results of the current film spotting poll, which is connected to I'm Thinking of Ending Things. We're asking you, what's your favorite performance in a Charlie Kaufman scripted film? Here are the options we gave you. John Malkovich in being John Malkovich. Nicolas Cage as twin brothers Charlie and Donald in Adaptation. Kate Winslet as Clementine in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We're also giving you the option of her co-star, Jim Carrey as Joel. Philip Seymour Hoffman's Caden Cotard from Synecdoche, New York, is your last choice. Well, we are also offering the option of other, so you can write in with your favorite performance in a Charlie Kaufman scripted film. Go ahead and vote. Leave a comment, too. We always love the comments we get at filmspotting.net. One way you can support Film Spotting, if you are so inclined, is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. You get ad-free episodes, you get early downloads, you get a merch discount, and you get monthly bonus shows for the August bonus show. And I think we're both pretty excited to talk about this right after we get done taping this show. We're going to talk about Paul Verhoeven's 1987 classic, RoboCop. It's one of three 80s genre classics we gave family members as options. They always get to pick our bonus content. The choices were between RoboCop and David Cronenberg's The Fly and John Carpenter's They Live. And we must have done a good job because they all basically got a third of the vote with RoboCop just winning with 36%. Yeah. And really, I mean, I think all three of these titles would have resonance for today, but how about RoboCop coming out Mm -hmm. now where, you know, an era of militarized police, you might say, from what we're seeing on our TV screens and Twitter feeds and what that film is largely about. So I cannot wait for that discussion. Mm -hmm. Also for our family members, we have a couple virtual events we're excited about. Film spotting trivia with us, with Sam Van Halgren, our producer, with Kat Sullivan, our PA, with the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, who we haven't been able to have on the show since COVID hit. He's going to join us. It's actually this Friday night. So the day this show drops is the day this will be occurring. And it sold out quickly. We made it only available to our family members to start as kind of a test run with this. And we may do that for a few more as we move forward An added benefit if it all goes well. But we also do hope to open it up to the larger film spotting audience at some point down the road. So we're going to all be split up probably and randomly assigned to a team. And I pity the team that has either you or me it's gonna, on their squad, Josh. It's going to be ugly. Yeah. You want to root for uh, Sam, Cat, or Michael. That's who you want to get. One of those. On September 26th, we will also have a virtual watch party. And this, again, is specifically for our family members on Patreon because they helped us get to the goal of 900 patrons. We're going to do it on the 26th at 4 p.m. Hopefully, we will get a lot of viewers. And as we're still working through the logistics, we do know for sure the title I have to say, it would have been my third prediction for the movie that won, even though it was my first choice for the movie that won. I suggested we could talk about Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight, a movie that is in the film spotting pantheon, but really hasn't been talked about much at all over the history of the show. And I know that's kind of the point of the pantheon, but it hasn't gotten a lot of love. And I haven't seen it probably since a year or two after it came out originally. We put that up against... Raiders of the Lost Ark, and a great one from the Coen brothers, No Country for Old Men. This is where basically listeners are just going to hang out with us virtually while me, you, and Sam talk about the movie. Kind of provide a commentary, but I also don't don't want to imply that it's going to be as 
erudite as your typical DVD audio commentary. We hope to goof around and just riff a little. And it's going to be out of sight, Josh, with 45 some percent of the vote or close. Yeah, that's exciting. Can't wait to watch it again. Can't wait to watch it with listeners. And listeners will be a part of the commentary, too, because we're hoping we're still figuring out the logistics, but hoping however we do this, there will be a chat feature um, so people can at least add in comments or questions as the movie is going that we can riff on. And then, you know, I imagine we'll have a little time of open discussion at the end as well. So definitely looking forward to this. That's September 26th for Film Spotting family members on Patreon. Yeah, and if all that's not enough to entice you to become a film spotting family member, there are now annual memberships available on Patreon. So instead of doing just that monthly contribution, you can pay for the whole year in advance, and it actually gets you a 10% discount. You get over one month free. And it's been exciting, Josh. We've already had our first 10 to 15 people convert to that annual membership. We thank everyone who supports us on Patreon and who has taken that step. Patreon.com slash Film spotting. We always like to keep you up to date on what's happening at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. I think we've previously mentioned that they're doing their boys will be boys pairing. This is Boys State, the new documentary, along with Peter Brooks' 1963 adaptation of Lord of the Flies. This week is part two, so they're talking about Boys State. And then coming up, well, they're going to dig into Charlie Kaufman's work in anticipation of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. This is the week of September 7th, so they'll look first at being John Malkovich, revisit that Kaufman, Spike Jones film, and then they will pair it with I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Your next picture show host, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. You get new episodes every Tuesday from them, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net. Okay, it is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Not a word. You didn't say one word about this to me. Don't you think you owe me that? Don't you think that you might respect me enough to at least consider what I'd have to say? I didn't want you worrying about it. Well, I'm worried, Curtis. How are you paying for all that? I got a home improvement loan from the bank. How could you do that without talking to me? You know the expenses we have coming up. You want to waste money on a stupid tornado shelter? I'm doing it. I'm doing it for us. I know you don't understand. You're right. I don't understand. That was Michael Shannon, who I hope never hears our version of that scene, Adam, alongside Jessica Chastain in 2011's Take Shelter, written and directed by Jeff Nichols. Along with that massacre, we talked about a few new digital releases, Amy Simons' She Dies Tomorrow, Josh recommended Black is King from Beyonce, and I used to go here from Chicago director Chris Ray, and I was a big fan of that new doc, Boy State. Why then that scene from Take Shelter? Well, Cyrus from Houston has the right answer. It took me a minute to get over Josh doing a Vincent D'Onofrio as Edgar the Bug impression to come to the horrific realization that he was attempting to channel Michael Shannon in Take Shelter. The connection here is pretty clear. Two films about people overtaken by a looming sense of dread. I can't speak in the specifics of She Dies Tomorrow, but always happy to be reminded of how great Take Shelter is 
even if Josh has irreparably tainted it for me. <laughs> Thanks for the entertainment in quarantine. Thanks for that, Cyrus. I did allude last week to some of the takes on your performance and some of those comparisons, maybe my favorite being Mike Peterson in Richmond, Virginia, saying it was your Wilford Brimley impression doing his best Buffalo Bill <laughs> as Michael <laughs> Shannon. We got another one here from Jorge Gonzalez Gropera. He says, Take Shelter is a gem. It's one of those high-concept, low-budget films that has always stayed with me as an example of what can be done with limited resources, a good idea, and a talented cast. So identifying the movie and scene was easy enough, but what I couldn't understand was why Josh was doing an inebriated Rooster Cogburn from True Grit. (laughs) I thought Michael Shannon had the role of Curtis. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you, everyone who entered. A fairly brimming Mm. film spotting hat this week, and we did hear from a lot of people who said, you know what? I only saw this movie, and I ended up loving it because... A film spotting because you guys talked about this movie so much. I think it was a Golden Brick finalist that year, ultimately the listener's choice winner that year. And I think my second favorite film of the year, Josh, you had it high as well. Yes. So it pains me to to hear that so many listeners feel like I, I desecrated it rather than honored it because honor was my intention. Honor was my intention. Okay, fair enough. Why don't you reach into that hat and pick out this week's winner? The winner is Albert Malafronte. He's from Pasadena. I can't believe Albert hasn't won Massacre Theater before. He's been such a longtime listener. A quick search suggests he hasn't, Josh. So, Albert, email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Now, you understand the scene. You're not sure if you still love Keith, but you're offering yourself to him in order to save the planet. Look at Jip, right up here. Now, we're starting here. Uh Uh-huh. And up and roll set. All right, we're straying quite a bit here from the Mission of Massacre Theater. Typically, we like to focus on great movies. Not always the case, but (laughs) often great movies. I'm not sure that this one qualifies. I like like that you think there's a mission behind Massacre Theater. Well, like like there should be rules to this thing. (laughs) Well, Josh, let me take you back to 2005 when film spotting was just a dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. We are not only not doing a quote-unquote great movie, but we are somehow doing a scene that has, what, five characters in it? Four? <laughs> I think I think there are five. I, okay. should, I should know because I'm playing the majority of them. That's right. See, I love it. You were game for this. So in this scene, this kind of rapid-fire bit where there are at least three different actors talking, mm-hmm. you've decided this is going to be your greatest acting challenge yet. You can do it. You're going to bring the funny voices to all these guys. I can't wait. I, I'm going to try. I mean, Sam picked the scene. And he, did. he usually does pick scenes with only two people. For some reason, he thought he would throw this at us. And I'm going to, I'm going to step up to the plate. God, I have it so, so easy here. And... There is going to be an obvious connection to this week's show in the script. We'll see if there are any others. You're really going to have to put your thinking caps on because as far as we can tell, there aren't any. And I know that will be a challenge to our audience. Josh, I started off. You definitely finish it. Are you ready? No. Okay, you're going to give me the action. (laughs) And action. Now look, this is going to get weird, all right? It's pretty freaky, but it's safe. There's no reason to be scared. Oh, no, no, no. Daddy, don't get scared. Really? Yeah. Good. Special effects. <laughs> this is the oh, work. You couldn't. You couldn't bring that, Josh. Sees that's that, that, that's witchcraft. That was amazing. That's like some David Copperfield. That's some kind of wizardry. Sorcery. How'd you do that, bro? Don't freak out. Look at your shoulder. And. 
scene. scene. So you can freak out on cue, but you can't make special effects noises. Well, special effects. Does it, you know, Sam will fill that in. Hey, All right. excuse me, playing for mm. people wasn't yeah. hard enough. I had to do the special effects too. I mean, come yeah. on, help yeah. me out here, Adam. <laughs> If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 7th. And I'm just going to say, I really love that scene. I particularly love, as you do, one of the characters and the performances in that scene. And overall, I kind of like the movie even. I would have no idea what movie we just massacred. None. I don't know. I think I think the David Copperfield line is going to some people are going to catch that. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Special effects. Co tam? Můžeme to jednou zkusit jinam, ne? Vadí? Nevadí. That's a clip from the 1966 film Daisies from Czech New Wave director Vera Chitlova. She's the next subject in our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. We're looking at the work of seven women filmmakers, all blind spots for us, who worked between the 1940s and the early 90s. We began with three shorts from 40s experimental filmmaker Maya Darren last week, and we also talked about Ida Lupino's 1953 film noir, the Hitchhiker. And yeah, so jumping to the 60s here, how about a little background on Chitlova and the Czech New Wave? Again, all of this new to me. Chitlova was in her early 30s when she made her first film. That was 1963's Something Different. She'd spent her 20s studying philosophy and architecture and then worked as a draftsman and a fashion model before going to film school. The new wave of filmmakers that she belonged to, probably the most prominent among them is Milos Forman. They brought an absurdist and cynical sensibility to an art form that had historically been heavily censored by the communist government. Now, despite the political and cultural thaw that was taking place around the time of Daisies, it was initially banned in Czechoslovakia for, this is great, Adam, here's the quote, I know. depicting the wanton. <laughs> Can you see that on the MPAA label totally. you know, underneath there? Yeah. Depicting yeah. the wanton. Chitlova and her film did receive international attention when Daisies won the Grand Prix at the 1966 Bergamo Film Festival. Here's writer and critic Christina Newland writing about Daisies for Little White Lies in 2017, and we'll link to this entire article in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. In Daisies, form underlines content in a radical manner. Random jump cuts transport the viewer across time and space. There are abrupt switches from color to black and white, and the oblique dialogue helps make the proceedings narratively unhinged. But this choppy, expressive approach is riveting. It's a world away from the predictable stylings of mainstream cinema from the era. I do think that the three shorts from Maya Darren probably put us in the right headspace to consume daisies and with this film consume the appropriate word. Did you find Chitlova's brand of experimentation here, Josh, as riveting as you found Darren's? Yeah, I would definitely put it um, alongside two of those shorts for sure. I do think Meshes of the Afternoon is a masterpiece and at a whole nother level, but this was almost like Darren in fast motion because of the, the speed that it went while it still did have some of those surrealist and fantastic touches and the formal elements that are described there well by Christina Newland. We'll link to that 
piece by Christina Newland, which is quite good. I want to start, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about some of those formal elements that she mentions, Adam, but I want to start with the two figures at the center of this film and kind of get your take on these women, these young women played by Yitta Sarhova and Ivana Karbanova. Basically, um, they're just, they're troublemakers bounding through this bizarre formal landscape that Chitlova has constructed here, causing trouble along the way, a lot of wantonness, a lot of wantonness, Adam, and <laughs> and just being anarchic. And I want to know who they reminded you of, what they made you think of, because I had fun with all the associations that came to mind and then seeing some mm-hmm. of uh, our listeners on, on Letterboxd make other connections. For me, the first thing I thought of was if Bugs Bunny had a pair of sisters, it would be these two. Yeah. Or then I thought, you know, because they're called, when you look at the credits, Marie 1 and Marie 2, that made me think, of course, of Thing 1 and Thing 2 in Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's exactly the kind of figures they are of just pure chaos our former PA Andy Mitchell, he he mentioned the Marx Brothers, and of course, you know the Marx Brothers preceded and influenced Bugs Bunny. So hopefully, all of that gives you a sense of just what these figures are up to, what they sort of stand for or stand against in Daisies. Mm-hmm. And I just love to hear, you know, how they struck you, if there were any impressions you got, or just what the experience was like of watching oh, yeah. them. Oh yeah. I've got a good one for you. I can add another name into the mix, and I think it's a pretty good one. This is the character and the performance I was thinking about the entire time I watched Marie 1 and Marie 2. I would retitle this film, Daisy's Sallow or A Couple Days of Harley mm, Quinn. Oh, Harley Quinn, totally, <laughs> because, yeah. Right? It's, it's a movie that is truly about decadence. It's about indulgence. It's very blatantly about gluttony, but it has all that manic, chaotic, cartoonish energy of Mm -hmm. Harley Quinn. And I have no idea if Margot Robbie has seen Daisies or if it was an influence on her at all, but her behavior, her mannerisms, her look even at times is really, really similar. There's a point, and I'm sorry, I don't remember which one is exactly Marie 1 and Marie 2, but the brunette Marie, at one point at dinner with one of the myriad men they go out with, she's cocking her head and batting Mm -hmm. her eyes with two pigtails, licking a spoon provocatively, And it's just pure silliness and pure Harley Quinn, who is, of course, doing exactly in I'm going just off of Birds of Prey here, but is doing exactly what these women are doing throughout this entire film, which is disrupting the status quo. They are completely about anarchy. And I mentioned the men and that recurring motif, using them, toying with them, toying with their their stupidity, feigning interest in their dumb hobbies and fetishes and their desires, but then using that against them to get what they want. That's really another tie potentially to Harley Quinn as well. But it leads to some really funny moments too. Like we've already seen them dupe one of these men by getting all the food they want and then he gets on the train and they get off the train. Well, when they try to do that same bit later with an older man, he won't stay on the train. So when they all get back on, they just decide <laughs> right, to stay right. on the train. They make him get off and they ride it to the next stop. So I like Birds of Prey overall, and I saw a lot of Harley Quinn yeah, in these characters. Yeah, that's absolutely a great connection. You're so right. Carbonova is Marie, too. She's she's brunette. She's taller than Serhova, and they were both you know, relatively inexperienced when they made this film in terms of performers, but they have. They each have a really distinct comic flavor. Uh, I think 
Carbonova, her face, you're right, Adam, she has this incredibly expressive face. And a lot of times she will, you know, play the part that these men want her to play with her expression. Mm -hmm. But I love how then once they start causing havoc, her face just opens wide with laughter and the giggling, the cackling that they both do also did remind me of Bugs Bunny's mischievous laugh, actually. I haven't done this yet, but I'd I'd love to go back and just kind of compare the audio of Bugs's (laughs) laugh to their laughs. Real quick, Josh. Did you notice, too, the part to your Bugs Bunny reference when I think it's they're on the boat and they're eating carrots? It looks just sure. like a carrot. Yeah, yeah. It looks just like the carrot Bugs Bunny would eat in one of the <laughs> yes. cartoons. Now, Serhova, she's shorter. She kind of is like a puck-like presence, I would say. And she just yeah. sort of floats through the film airily. And it's there's such a disconnect between her physical presence and the chaos she causes that is inherently fun, mm-hmm. right? Because she's this, this figure who you wouldn't expect would be capable of rendering this much chaos and yet she does. And and I think both of them, you know, they're often exaggeratedly acting like little girls here, but it's because they know these men want to infantilize them. And that's mm-hmm. all part of their act. And you're right, the targets, their targets if they have them here, not to say that they're this strategic, but they do have targets. It's men and it's the wars of men. We get a couple like quick mm-hmm. it's almost subliminal insert shots of bombs being dropped here and there. But these dinners with the men are are kind of the comic set pieces, the highlights, the way uh, Tserhova just wolfs down everything on the menu at one seating to the dismay of the -hmm. the guy who's there. And how about the fact that Tserhova is always cutting things, snipping things with this pair of scissors she's carrying Mm. around? I think she might cut some carrots or bananas at one point. And that's where I'm thinking, okay, there's definitely a circumcision implication going on here. A little frightening for the male (laughs) viewers, which is by design. (laughs) For sure. It's a film that opens with military music and footage of bombs dropping being intercut with a movie projector, right? So this isn't Chidlova being sly. She's being pretty overt. She's saying, I'm going to use cinema as a weapon against a world that uses these kinds of weapons. And that is so enamored with destruction and suffering. So she's she's going to subvert our expectations of how women in society, quote unquote, should behave and also of what cinema can be. We do get those jump cuts and the different filters and the black and white to color and there being no regard really for continuity in the film. And inevitably, probably a bit of a cliche on our part, but it's definitely evident. We referenced Boonwell when we were talking about Darren last week, and I was thinking about Boonwell again this week, and maybe the influence that Chitlova had to have had on him, because you see that same sense of surrealism, the experimental form, but whether it's Exterminating Angel in 62 that came out before Daisy's did, or Discrete Charm of the Bourgeoisie in 72, obviously after this movie, using here as Chitlova does the bourgeois conceit of the yes. dinner party. This refined dinner party, but again, subverting it, turning it completely on its head. That's really the final set piece of this movie. And I really did love that touch where after all of the destruction that they cause, after this food fight and after destroying this refined set, they they try to clean it all up and put it back together. And we hear one of the characters say repeatedly that if they just work, Mm -hmm. they'll be happy, right? That has to be the most in a film that's filled with blatant attacks on the status quo and on the powers that were in Czechoslovakia at the time. The biggest attack on the establishment had to be this idea that you can clearly see that working is not going to fix anything that they've done, nor is it going to actually make them happy. Even though these people, the people watching this film are being 
told that are given that message by the government every day that if they just work, they will, in fact, be happy. We see here that they're not. And that touch of then putting back the dinner plates really perfectly, really carefully, the sophisticated setup with the napkins, but the plates are broken. The plates don't actually fit all back together. It's all very ill-fitting and uncomfortable. I just felt like that was such a great visual metaphor. Well, the dinner party being disrupted is a motif that also goes back to Darren, too, right? In At Land, we see that. Absolutely. And yeah, this sequence you're talking about where they try to repair what they've done, that's where you get a sense of the darkness that is underneath all of the playfulness. I mean, mostly this is like explosive playfulness that you'd find in a Looney Tunes cartoon, but it does turn dark in moments. I think of the failed suicide attempt that's kind of played for humor. It's like kind of impish. But Mm -hmm. it's also disturbing. I think of the moment when they both light those streamers hanging from their bedroom ceiling on fire. And it just it it seems like dangerous in a different way than a lot of the other things they've been doing. But it does it does culminate in this dinner party repair scene you're talking about and their whole personas change. It's like they've become robotic and they do murmur over and over and over, not just hardworking, but things like we're wholesome orderly, virtuous. Mm. And to me, you know, the movie doesn't end there. They get out of that sort of headspace, but it does give the film a hint of sadness where you kind of feel like they're not going to change, right? We see at the end of the film, they're still being there. They're still being thing one and thing two and bugs and all these other people, but they've kind of learned, they've kind of come to understand they're not going to get away with it. Like in this, in this society, there is going to mm-hmm. be a price. They're not going to give in to that, but they've come to that recognition, which for all its kind of joyous raucousness does give this sort of uh, this air of sadness to daisies as well. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Sarhova and her kind of impish look, and I thought a lot with that haircut and— Oh, I know where you're going. Yeah, with the daisies right ahead of Joan of Arc is where I was going. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to say Varda. For sure. I can see that. The hair is very— Agnes Varda ask, but I was thinking of Joan of Arc, and maybe that's because I was already kind of in a biblical headspace when you have all of the biting of apples and you actually get, I mean, literally, I suppose it's not literally because it's not marked that way, but it's a tree of knowledge, right? We see them take the apples from the tree, bite them, realize that the world, this is the realization, the epiphany they're having, that the world is a sinful one. And that really they can do whatever they please. And we get some more garden imagery, including laying on the bed with those leaves on the wall behind them. And you mentioned this idea of the movie. It's it's so fitting, you know, just as you get banished from the Garden of Eden, right? You get banned for depicting the wanton. And I do love that phrase because I haven't heard anyone use the word wanton since probably 1966. <laughs> and I had to I had to look up exactly what its definition was. And it's so perfect, of course, because there's one aspect of the definition that is really tied mainly to that idea of gluttony. And part of the reason I discovered today that the movie was banned because of the food wasting yeah, that happened that. on screen. Okay. So there's that. But then wantonness also going back to an archaic, going back to a much older definition, is all about overt women's sexuality, right? So just the fact that these women are acting in the provocative way they're acting and the provocative way they're dressed was enough to get this movie banned. And it is so troubling to think about, going back to your point, Josh, in some sense, the idea that at the end of this film, they are somewhat repressed. Maybe they are coming to the realization that all this anarchy isn't perhaps going to bring about the change that they really hope it does. 
I mean, Chitlova didn't get to make another film in her home country until 1975. Mm -hmm. Like that was that was Mm -hmm. her punishment for her wantonness in making this film. And I mentioned the biblical stuff, too. I mean, their names quite obviously are Marie one and Marie two and the Virgin Mary is referenced at one point. And that works, too, in the context of the film, because you mentioned men seeing them as younger women or infantilizing them. I think the names also suggest that all men want to see them as those virginal Mm. characters, and they also don't need to see the distinctions between them. They see them not as individuals. They see all women as a monolithic thing, and a monolithic thing ultimately for them to have dominion Yeah, that's an interesting way to watch this film, is when are we seeing them through their own eyes, who they they Mm -hmm. think they are, when are we seeing them through their eyes, who they're trying to perform, and then when are we seeing them through the eyes of the men in the film? And so you could say naming them Marie 1 and Marie 2 is demeaning, but that's an instance of, well, as you're saying, that's who the men who are pursuing them. Yes. That's how they see them. It's just one and it's another exactly. one. And it's interesting too, when, when you talk about how they behave sexually, it's okay for those men, for them to act out, quote unquote, act out in that way when it's directed towards them. But when they start to act out unexpectedly or ways where the men start to lose control, then it becomes wanton. Then it, you know, in these men's minds, mm-hmm. that's when it crosses the line. Yes. That's also when the movie gets to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it definitely does. And hopefully we have some people participating in this marathon and seeing this movie for the first time like us or revisiting it. It's one I saw a few comments online here or there that it was a common film school movie. It wasn't a film school movie for me, just as Darren wasn't for us. But after seeing it and discussing it here, I can absolutely understand why it would be on the syllabus of a lot of intro to film classes. Daisy's is on the Criterion channel where you can also find Chitlova's 1963 debut, Something Different, as well as her contribution to 1966's Pearls from the Deep. That's an anthology of shorts from Czech New Wave directors. Up next in the marathon, we're getting away from the 14-minute running times, Josh, and the 73 and 76-minute running times, and we are watching all three hours and 22 minutes of it. Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman, and I should probably just stop there, then butcher <laughs> go, the French, but Jean Dielman 23, K du Comars. Is there I, more? 1080 Bruxelles? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, man. Now, this is going to be ugly. Is this going to be at the same show where we're also talking about the four hour something once upon a time in America? Did did the stars align oh, in such God. a way, Adam? I don't know. I'll have to look at the schedule. Um. I'm sorry, I have to start watching these films <laughs> right now, and we can't finish the show. But Jean Dielman, which is how we'll refer to it yes, from please. here on out, was the big blind spot that really launched this marathon, so I'm excited to get to it. The complete lineup can be found at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Josh, we do need to end the show right now and start doing our homework. Indeed. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, you can find Adam at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005, and you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what is your favorite performance in a Charlie Kaufman scripted film? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, The Personal History of David Copperfield, the latest from Armando Iannucci, discussed in the first segment of this show, recommended by me on digital 
You can see Bill and Ted face the music, get duped, the debut feature from director Ninian Doff, Matt Donato at Slash Film called it the hippest, wildest, most energetic genre blowout to come from the UK since Attack the Block. Okay, that's a bold statement. Out in wide release, The New Mutants, part of the X-Men universe, directed by Josh Boone, who did The Fault in Our Stars. This is a movie, Josh, that has a long history of production delays with the original shoot ending in 2017. Tenet is also out limited on August 31st, expanding wide next weekend. And we do plan to discuss Tenet, along with the new one from Charlie Kaufman hitting Netflix, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is by the late Justin Towns Earl. comes from the album The Saint of Lost Causes. There's more information at JustinTownsEarl.com. R.I.P. Justin Towns Earl, an artist we played in the very early days of the show, Josh, back when Bloodshot Records here in Chicago was the only label that gave us permission to play their stuff. Definitely sad and sad news last week about Justin Towns Earl's passing. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.